Happy Resurrection Day. I hope that uh, you've taken time to join um, with us, but even before that, that you were able to um, spend some time with your family, and hopefully, if, especially if you're in Hawaii, you've got some breakfast, or maybe you're eating it now. Uh, but we hope that you're enjoying res your Resurrection Day, Easter uh, Sunday together, and um, it's just, it's just a great time that we can share. Again, even though we can't be in the, in the same facility, the same room, we can still share in the hope, we can still share the message, we can still share in fellowship and the love. So uh, just thank you for, for joining us. Um, resurrection, you know, it's, it's one of those, those things that, um, you know, we hear a resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and, and if, in case you didn't know, like, what we believe about it here, what we believe is that this is an actual resurrection. It's a coming back from the dead. Not kind of dead, but really dead. I mean, sincerely dead, to quote the Wizard of Oz. That there's, there's no, like, kind of maybe just sick, mistake. No, dead. And then comes back to life. That's what we believe. We don't believe simply that that um, resurrection is a way to think about uh, bringing back Jesus's message and bringing that back to life or, or bringing about, back his ideas or his, his memories. Sure, all, all of that's important and I, and I think we, we, sh we should do that. I think we should um, you know, bring back his message, keep his message alive. I think we should uh, bring back his teachings and keep them alive. I think his ideas, I think his very spirit, all of that, so important. But the resurrection is more than that. And the reason we celebrate it every year is because the resurrection is a declaration. It's a declaration by God. And every time we celebrate it, it's a declaration by those of us who believe in the resurrection. And the declaration is this, this world is not all that there is. There is a God who loves and who cares. There is a God who acts supernaturally. And sometimes we don't like the word supernatural, so let me use a different word. There's a God who does the impossible. And if you've been someone who's listened to our messages before, or if you really know the, the heart of the, of the Christian message, the Christian message that we find from the Bible is simply this. God has given us the best way that we can live, where we can live in peace, where we can have love, where we can have joy, where we can be fulfilled. He's given us the best way, but he's also demonstrated to us that it is impossible. That's why we talk about grace. Our first song was, this is amazing grace. We talk about grace because grace is this, this rem reminder to us that, that we, cannot, we cannot earn, we cannot work for, we cannot merit, we can't be good. Not the way that's needed for the world to be saved. It's impossible. It's only made possible through Jesus Christ. Only God 
acting on our behalf through Jesus Christ. He makes it possible. And this is why the resurrection is so important. Because our message about salvation is that God does the impossible. He helps us be what we couldn't be on our own. And so the resurrection, the resurrection is a demonstration of that power. God does the impossible. He does what we cannot do on our own. You see, if we didn't have the resurrection, if we didn't have this this belief that, that Jesus Christ in history died and rose from the dead, and that could only have happened because of a supernatural God acting supernaturally, if that's the, if we didn't have that belief, why should we believe that that he could help us do the impossible and love the way we need to love and to have that true life transformation that we need. We really would be left on our own. And this message of, of God doing the impossible, of God doing the supernatural, it's a message that, that is just dying in our world today. In case you missed it, you know, this whole pandemic that's been going on, in case you missed it, what it has done is has demonstrated once and for all that the world has placed its faith in science. We have placed our faith in science. Now, science means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, okay? But when we say we've placed our faith in science, or when I say that, I say like we are, we are doing what science tells us. What science tells us is what we, not only what we need to do to, um, you know, stop the, the spread of this, of this virus, but also what, what we should do, what we ought to do. Our, our, our very ethics are coming from science. And that's really not what science is for. Science has a, has a purpose. And, and science is, is, you know, the way I think about science is it's us understanding how God created our wonderful universe and how it works. But most of us if we've really been paying attention, now some people haven't been paying attention, but if you've really been paying attention, you know that science has been kind of frustrating in this time. That we hear different messages from different doctors and different researchers. And every time we, you know, we think like, oh, this is what we should do, there's, there's something else. You know, at first it was social distancing, and then it was, you know, six feet, and then it was 10 feet, and now, you know, somebody came out with 20 feet. I mean, what, what is it? I, I don't know. And I'm not criticizing science, because science has been put in a very difficult position, one that science isn't comfortable with. Science is in a position where they don't get to go into a lab somewhere and do research without everybody watching, and without, you know, the, the results being immediate. They, you know, there's, there's usually time, you know, to, to respond to these situations. And so it's being played out right in front of us. 
And things keep changing. We hear conflicting things about you know, medicines and everything else. And then of course it gets mixed in with politics and, and it's frustrating. But make no doubt, we've, we've placed our faith in science. You, you go to the store and people are wearing masks. Why are they wearing masks? Do they actually know that the mask help? Or do they use them because somebody told them that it helped? Do they do them because of somebody said, the science says that it helps. And so we, we live in this world that's placed its faith in science. And in a world that's placed its faith in science, the world has no place for supernatural. A world that, that says science is the key to all things, is the, is the sole arbiter and judge of truth. Because scientific truth requires a couple of things. It requires it requires that something be observable and it requires that something be repeatable. And if it's not observable in some way and it's not, or measurable, and it's not repeatable in some way, you can't really validate it. You can't necessarily say it didn't happen, but you can certainly say it's not scientifically true. And that's why science struggles with the unique. That's why it's struggling with this coronavirus. When I've talked to doctors and the things that I've read, what they say is things like, we think it's kind of like previous coronaviruses, but it seems to be behaving differently. It seems to be doing things that are, that are unique, one of a kind. Maybe someday they won't be unique, but right now they're unique. So we don't know how to respond if they're unique. And that's why you have so much caution being, being taken. The resurrection. The resurrection can never be proved scientifically because it's unique. It's supernatural. You can't have an experiment. You know, I offered some people in the church, I could do an experiment, we could kill some of you and see if we could bring you back from the dead, but nobody took me up, up on it. I'm not sure why. Um, but that's really, you know, if we did a scientific experiment, that's what we'd have to do. We'd have to somehow come up where we could resurrect. And then, then we could scientifically prove it. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's unique. Oh, there had been other resurrections in the Bible. And maybe you've heard of other resurrections in history. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unique. It resists any kind of scientific validation. And anytime something's unique, that's the case. And so here we are. And we have placed our faith in, in science. And science is telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And the big question is, you know, if that's where our faith is, then how does that actually affect how we live? Because if science is what we're going to place our faith in, science tells us that, you know, there really is nothing beyond this material universe. Oh, there may be parallel universes people talk about, but, but really, scientific naturalism talks about, you know, the What's here is what's here. And in fact, when you die, 
you die. You're, you're done. You, you know, it's, there's no more existence. If you believe that, then of course that's going to affect how you live in this world. And for some people it may have a positive effect. For other people it has a negative effect. But it has an effect. But if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe not only just in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but his promise that we too, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, would also be resurrected, changes things. Changes things if, if when we die, things not, are just not all pow. We're just all done, finished. If we continue and we continue with Jesus forever, changes how we live here. Some people have thought about, you know, the resurrection. They've thought about the resurrection of believers and the afterlife, um, kind of like that gets some kind of like static, unchanging situation, and it's not. The Bible never presents it that way. The Bible presents the, you know, after we die as being something that's full of activity. We might even dare say work. There's things for us to do. We continue to exist. We continue to experience. We continue to relate. We continue to love. And if that's the case, how we live in this world, it's going to change. It's going to change how we live in this world. And I would think it's going to change how we live in this world for the better. And so what, where we place our faith, what we believe, it matters. It, it, it affects how we live even today. And so we come to the story, the resurrection story, and I'm going to read from the Gospel of John here. And, and some of you are here on Good Friday, and we read the chapters 18 and 19, and, and I'm you know, so glad so many of you joined us. And if you didn't get a chance to do that, I encourage you to go and, and just listen and, and get a sense of the suffering of Christ. But there's also something that the Bible doesn't record as much that, that we also need to have a sense for. You see, Jesus dies, you know, Friday evening. And even before that, his followers knew this was it. They, they knew it was over. Because they didn't expect any kind of supernatural rescue. They didn't really believe in Jesus that way yet. They believed Jesus was a great teacher, great man. They thought he was sent from God. They have a general understanding. But the despair and the hopelessness, the abandonment that his followers pretty much give to Jesus shows they didn't really understand. And so they're in a process of, of grieving. And if you've ever grieved, and I'm pretty sure most of you have, if you've ever grieved, you know the mix of emotions that come with it. You go from, from sadness to anger to feeling guilty. You know, you, you have these moments when you're trying to kind of make sense of it all and rationalize it. And there's not enough time for them to kind of reach that final stage of acceptance. So it's just that early, just you know, if you've ever gone through it, it's so overwhelming. Sometimes it actually is sh it's just like shock 
like you just kind of shut down emotionally. For other people, it's just a storm. It's just a storm of different emotions. And they're going through that. Some of them are probably, you know, just, just don't know what to do. They're just frozen. Some of them are probably afraid. Others are just a sense of overwhelming grief and hopelessness. You know, I, I don't think they've yet reached the point of, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. But they're going through this. And it's, it's, it's not just like just a few minutes, a couple hours. They're getting up the next day and, and they know it's not the same. Because they're grieving in a way that, that none of us have ever experienced. None of us walked with Jesus. None of us spent time in his presence and knew like, even though we didn't understand what he was saying, we were like, we would be like, wow, it's awesome. He exuded a charisma. He exuded love. It's just pouring out everything that he is. We were so convinced, so convinced he's from God. They walked with him. Some of them walked with him for three years. He was more than just their teacher. He was more than just their master. He even called them friends, but he was more than that. He was more than... Than a, than a father. He was more than a brother. He was all of those things, but he was more to them. And the closer, you know, these people were to Jesus, the more overwhelming the grief must have been. Because he was more. Because on top of all that, they really believed he was the Messiah. They really believed he was the Savior. They really believed he was the one that was going to lead them to victory. They had seen him do amazing things. They really believed it. Now he's dead. And they know he's dead. And so they're doing what you do when someone dies. But it's even more overwhelming for them. And so we come to this text in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So we come to this story, and and again, we find Mary Magdalene and and Peter and likely John, you know, doing exactly what we'd expect them to do. Mary Magdalene is coming, and and John uses this kind of literary device where he just mentions one person who usually represents a group. So Mary Magdalene is probably not alone. There's other people there with her, other women. And she's come, and and she's weeping, and... And she, you know, she wants to do what they need to do for the body. But when she gets there, you know, this strange thing has happened. And because she doesn't really expect Jesus to be resurrected, then she interprets it the only way she could. And she interprets it as someone's stolen his body. He's been moved. And, and, She doesn't know what to do, so she runs and she tells Peter and John. And so we see Peter and John coming back, and and we see they go in, and and they they see the empty tomb, and they see what's happened there, that, that, you know, if someone had come to take the body, why would they have taken the time to unwrap all the the linens? That doesn't really make sense. And they, they realize to some level, what had happened. It says, you know, John believed. So they're getting it. But then the scene comes back to Mary. Mary, who hadn't appeared to have gone in to the, into the empty tomb. And we see her there, and she's, she's weeping. It's now grief upon grief. It's like, you know, for goodness sake, You know, it's like, I mean, it's bad enough that they crucified him. Now, you know, they're going to desecrate his body. They're not even going to let him rest in peace. And so it's grief upon grief. And we get this story. And it's a way it's told in Greek is, is so to me, more vivid and more powerful than it is told in English, but we still kind of get it in English. 
And, and we, we, we see in verse 14 where she, she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. Now, we don't know why she doesn't recognize him. People speculate, you know, all kinds of things, but, but she doesn't. The story just tells us she doesn't recognize him. But then she turns back away. She turns away. For a moment she had looked at Jesus, but now she turned away. And then Jesus talks to her. And she still doesn't know. She still doesn't know until he says her name. Understand this. If you go to a cemetery, okay, if you go to a cemetery early in the morning and no one else is there and the gardener shows up and he knows your name, it's kind of scary, okay? It kind of freaked me out if that happened. But it doesn't freak Mary Magdalene out. He says her name. He knows her name. And then it says, she turns. She turns back. This is how we know she turned away. She turned back. And she calls him teacher. It's amazing. This way the story is told, it's almost like you can... You can see it like it's in a movie. And that expression on her face, you know, the, I don't even know, like, I'm not a very good actor, so I would have a hard time doing it, but if I were the director trying to direct the, the actress playing this part, it's like, you need to uh, mix in their confusion, perplexion, you know, joy, um, sense of, you know, love, you just mix that all in your face and then, you know, show that as we shoot the shot because all of that was there. Simultaneously believing but not believing. Simultaneously full of grief but now full of joy. It's just this moment and I'm so glad John preserves this moment for us. Because he's doing it more than just to let us in on this story. I think John is always trying to tell us something about our own belief and how we come to believe. You see, a lot of us can be like Mary. We're looking, we're looking for, for Jesus in the wrong place. You know, she, she didn't know where to look. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And so we're looking in, in the wrong place. And maybe we're looking in the wrong place because we were introduced to the wrong idea about Jesus. Maybe we were told that Jesus was some kind of like lawgiver or some kind of, you know, taskmaster. Or maybe we were told that Jesus was just this great teacher and that he just had some things, some good ideas and ways that we should live. You know, maybe, you know, we were told that Jesus was kind of the, you know, the, the, the greatest Santa Claus ever, the great giver of gifts, the ones who he's, his whole concern is to make you happy and to give you your best life now. And that's, that's the whole purpose 
of Jesus. And maybe that's what you've been told. And, and, and maybe you even walked and followed that idea of Jesus for a while, but then you realized it leads to an empty tomb. And Jesus isn't there. And maybe there's been a time when you, when you actually genuinely knew Jesus, but it's been so long. You know, you just, you just don't recognize him anymore. You, you only recognize the, the, the little bit that you knew. And instead, when you see Jesus in his full, he doesn't look like you expect. I don't know. I don't know where, you know, where you might be. And I, but I just know that all of us who, who are followers of Jesus Christ, all of us who, who have called out to, to him and, and called him to be Savior and Lord, I know all of us have had that moment, like Mary, where we've turned. We've turned from wrong belief, we've turned from disbelief, and we've turned to true belief. True belief in the true Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love that she calls him, she calls him teacher. Teacher. Because John, again, is telling us, like, fundamentally, this is what we become when we truly have faith in Jesus Christ. Too many people in the church, too many churches, too many pastors have made being a student, being a disciple of Christ as an optional thing for special Christians, for really serious Christians. You are the disciples, you are the students, but the rest, you guys can kind of be whatever you want to be. Just make sure you hang out, you know, show up, put some money in the offering plate, you know, do some good things. But John is, is re-emphasizing this fundamental relationship. And we, again, this isn't just in this story. We read this throughout the New Testament. That we are called to be disciples. And disciples is simply students. Students who follow. Students who learn and do what their Lord and Master and Teacher tells them. So she, she says, teacher. But we also see Mary Magdalene showing us something else. And we see that in, in verse 18, that as soon as you know, Jesus kind of tells her, you know, this is, this is me and this is what, things I need to do, she runs and tells the disciples. And I like what she says here. She says, I have seen the Lord. Now, Lord can just mean like just an honorary term, honorific term like sir. But here, especially in the Gospel of John, I think it has even more weight. She knows something about Jesus now. She knows that what Jesus had said, it's all kind of clicking together. He wasn't just speaking figuratively. He wasn't just giving a metaphor. He was saying, no, I am coming back. And now she knows. 
And see, that's what we, we like to do. We like to celebrate things like Easter. Even people who aren't really Christians like to ce celebrate things like Easter. We like to think of this story because it's this great story. It's this great story of, of, of the underdog fighting on our behalf and then, you know, just winning in the end. We love this story. And we get inspiration from stories like this. It's just like why we love Christmas. You know, the, the, the serious part about Christmas. We love baby Jesus. But you are missing the point of Christmas. And you are missing the point of Easter. If you only think of Jesus as a baby or as the resurrected Jesus. You're missing the point. He came to be born of a virgin. He walked among us. He died for us and he rose from the dead. Not simply so that we could see him. But so that we would know he is Lord. He is Lord. The early confession of the, of the Christian church was simply that. Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is friend, Jesus is brother, Jesus is, you know, teacher, anything else. It was Jesus is Lord. Because Lord captured so much more in just one word than any other word. It had the indications that he is God, he's from God. It had the, the, you know, the, the idea that, that he is the one they follow. But it also left room for the idea of him being teacher. And as he had said earlier, being friend. But he is Lord. You see, a lot of people want to come to Jesus the same way the crowds came to Jesus. They want to come to Jesus because, you know, they're hurt and they need to be healed. You know, they're sick. They want to be healed. They're injured. They want someone to take care of it. They, they're having problems in, in their lives and, and they're struggling in relationships or a sense of hopelessness or, or all of that. And they come to Jesus for that and they say, Jesus, I need you to fix my problems. But I don't need you to be Lord. I just want you to fix my problems. And so a lot of people treat Jesus the way that people in that day treated him. But get this. What I think Jesus would want to say to us when we say, I, want you, I need you to fix, fix my, my problems, but I don't want you to be my Lord. What I think he would want to say to us is, you know what? I cannot fix your problems if you keep doing things your way. If you keep insisting on being your own Lord, if you keep insisting on going out and following after what other people are keep telling you to do, if you're not going to let me be Lord of your life, I cannot fix your problems in any permanent way. Oh, you may get temporary relief, but you're not going to have the cure. Jesus is Lord. And he's Lord of all in your life, or he's Lord of none. If he's, 
If you can't say, Jesus, I just want you to be Lord over my finances or over my family or over, or over you know, my, my, my pride or, or certain things that we carve out for Jesus. No. He's Lord of all. And Mary recognizes this. And if we're really going to understand the power of the resurrection... We need to understand that, that Jesus had earlier, you have to go, after you read John 20 and 21, you have to go back and read John all over again. And you have to go back and now go, okay, now that I know what happens, let me go back and reread some of these statements of Jesus because now they, we have the full context, they make sense. And if you go all the way back to John chapter 10, Jesus says this statement that, that seems kind of, you know, kind of enigmatic, like puzzling, mysterious. What is this? And he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, what Jesus Resurrection tells us, it tells us that if we will accept Jesus Christ as Lord, if we will stop insisting on doing things our own way, that if we acknowledge the sin that's in our lives and we confess it to God, that we receive, we receive the gift of salvation that we no longer have to pay the penalty for our sin. It's been paid for us. But better than that, better than that, we now have Jesus Christ, his spirit who lives in us. We have his word where we can study and we can grow and we can learn. We have his church full of other people who are on that same journey. And we can have Life abundantly. Have life abundantly. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you are not experiencing abundant life right now, something's wrong. You need to figure that out. Because Jesus' promise is abundant life. What does that mean? It means to the full, it means overflowing, but, but overflowing with what? And, and I gotta guess, it means overflowing with, with love, overflowing with joy, overflowing with grace, overflowing with a sense of, of purpose and direction in your life. It's overflowing. It's not drip, 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 Jesus gives you one drop at a time. He pours it out on you. And he pours it out on you, not just so you can receive it. Again, a lot of people like that part of Christianity. They like the part where they receive. So yes, you do receive. But he pours it out on you, not just so you receive, but so that you live life to the full by loving those around you, by spreading joy and peace, by extending grace to those all around you. That's how you experience life to the full. You do not experience life to the full trying to you know, be as small and, and as, you know, as, as closed off as you can. 
Some of us in Hawaii, we pride ourselves on that. I'm a private person. No. When Christ gets a hold of us, his spirit overflows us and we live life to the full. We love people with a deeper love than we could ever love. We see beauty that we could not see before. We have incredible sense of hope, deeper sense of joy, life to the full. You know, some people, you know, everybody listens to their different places. Some people, you know, life's going really well for you. And, and maybe, you know, you go, ah, you know, I'm good. I don't need anything else. Well, good for you, you know. Most of us aren't there. And some people, you know, they think they know Jesus. They think they know who he is, but they really haven't been really looking in the face of the Jesus who is our Savior and our Lord. And by the way, if you think you know Jesus, if you think you've been walking with Jesus, this is a question I ask my church from time to time if you're listening in. When is the last time Jesus challenged you to be different from who you are? When is the last time Jesus challenged you to express love to your enemies, to reach out to those who are different from you? When's the last time? When's the last time Jesus challenged you to, to confront some of those kind of personal demons and personal sins in your life? When's the last time? Because the Jesus I know in his time will do exactly that because that's what he does for me. So some people think they know Jesus. Other people are kind of in the midst of some junk right now. You know, you know life's not turning out the way they thought it should have turned out. And they hear this message and they want to believe, but you know, they just think, I cannot. I've wasted too much time. Well, to all of you, wherever you are, let me just tell you. Let me just tell you. We can only begin where we are. And where we need to begin is looking in the face of Jesus and calling out to him as our Savior and our Lord and committing ourselves to following him you see, Jesus is more than just hope. He has more than just a plan. Jesus made a way for us to be all that we were created to be. Jesus is the truth. Jesus offers us life. It's so hard to be able to explain so much of this in a short amount of time. And I encourage you that, that if you have questions that you will ask these questions, you will at least leave your name for us to be able to contact you and, and let you know more. But if you know what I'm talking about, right now I encourage you, if you're not a believer and you know this is your moment to turn and look in the face of the Savior, that you would just simply admit who you are without Christ and that you cannot, you cannot do this without him that you would accept the gift that he gave to us on the cross and that you would commit to living your life for him. And if you're one of these that 
has kind of believed in a lesser Jesus, a different Jesus. But now you understand more. I just pray that you would, you would continue in that path. And it all begins by going to God's word. Our world wants to compromise Jesus, reshape Jesus in its image, and then make him a more comfortable figure for us to follow. No, go back to the Jesus who offers so much, who's the healer, who's the teacher, but he's also the one who says, there is a cost. You need to take up your cross and follow me. And so as we come to this time of reflection, I'm going to pray and then we're going to hear Cheryl just play some music. And if you know the song she's playing, you know, you can sing it home, along at home or you can just listen. But let's just remember the power of the resurrection, not just what it meant 2,000 years ago, but what it should mean to us right now in this very moment. 